Hey there. We're so glad you're listening to the podcast today. Unfortunately, this week, due to technical difficulties, we weren't able to record the entire sermon. Uh, so it will end abruptly at around 39 minutes. Um, but we wanted to go ahead and post the portion of the sermon that we did capture uh, so that you could listen to it. So we hope you enjoy. We're calling this, this uh, series that we're going through through the book of Acts called Blueprint because it's hopefully going to give us God's design for the church, which it will. So um, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Um, <clears throat> we're, going to, we're going to get there in just a second. Just a few things I want to say before we get there. But go ahead and open up uh, to Acts chapter 9. There's some light. We will be starting at verse 1 in Acts chapter 9. We've been studying through the book of Acts now for a few months. And uh, we've come up to Acts chapter 9. And the sovereignty of God is, is pretty amazing. Um, that he would bring us to this particular text as we are entering into our very last day in this particular building. If you are familiar with the book of Acts whatsoever, um, the entire book of Acts is about the church starting. And one of the, I mean, the major players of the, of the church starting, someone who's responsible, you know, outside of God, humanly speaking, of the church expanding, writing letters that would eventually become scripture is the Apostle Paul. And so... Uh, this particular text is, is a huge text in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. There's two front rows are completely empty up here. If, y'all, if anybody wants to be a front row Baptist, there's, there's seats up here in the very front. I know that's not necessarily the most enjoyable thing. But uh, anyway, back to the text. So Acts chapter 9 is a huge thing. If you look, if you kind of read the entire book of Acts, the, the, book, the first eight chapters, really the dominant figure, the, the man, if you will, is, the, is Peter. And then once you get to Acts 9... We talk about how Saul is converted. And then the rest of the book of Acts is, is really about how Saul or Paul, same thing, uh, is used by God. Now, instead of Peter, he becomes Paul becomes the major player in uh, establishing the church. So this particular text in the sovereignty of God is pretty amazing that we would have uh, Paul's conversion and this kind of benchmark text in the book of Acts that that can maybe confronts our, our perceptions of, of Saul's conversion and hopefully would give us a good challenge that we can go be sent out uh, today to, to be the church. Will, a guy named William Larkin says this. This is pretty, this is pretty, uh, pretty, I don't know, controversial. The second most important event in human history, obviously Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, number one, is the conversion to Christianity of Saul of Tarsus. So that's the text we're looking at. That's his opinion, but that's a pretty big statement, pretty big, bold statement. And it, I mean, it could be, it could be true. So what we're going to be looking at today as we're looking at the book of Acts chapter 9 is the radical conversion of Saul. Um, this, is, this has gone down as, as, as a pretty radical, radical uh, conversion that he has. If you've heard, the, the, I've never had a Damascus Road experience. This is, this is what, this is literally what that means, a Damascus Road experience. Um, but before we get to the book of Acts in chapter 9, I want to say a couple things because as, as y'all probably heard, this is our last particular uh, week that we're going to have here. And I remember we moved in here in October. I'll give you a little bit of the, of the story. We moved in here in October of 2009. So we've been in this building almost seven years. In two more weeks, it would be seven years. We planted the church in January of 2009. 
at the BCM building right down the road. And as we moved in there, the, the, the South Carolina Baptist Convention has a rule. Hey, nine months is all you get here. And once, once you're done here in nine months, you've got to have somewhere else. And I remember kind of freaking out thinking, I'm just trying to get a church started. Now I've got to find a place in nine months. Um, so I'm freaking out and I'm like pretty worried. And then it's about April or so. We've been a church for about three months. And Tim McGarity tells me, he comes up to me, he goes, hey, so if he's from New York, so hey, if what, I read in the paper. Though, if you so he tells me, uh, I, I read in the paper that they're going to start a, a performing arts center in downtown on Main Street. You should check it out. And he, I said, well, can you tell me the, where you found it? Like, send me the article so I could see what's going on. And so he tells me, and he says that it's, the building's going to be owned by Comporium. This particular building is owned by Comporium. They own everything, right? They have a monopoly, they own everything. Um, and so I come down here and I walk in and I walk up to some construction guys. I'm like, hey, uh, I mean, this is, how, this is my, how I get the building. I walk in here and there's construction guys. And I'm, I'm like, Who, who's in charge uh, of you guys doing construction? And they point me to somebody and I say, uh, we want, I want to rent this building. Who do I need to talk to about renting this building uh, in October? Because it was being built uh, from, from, by this, the building wasn't ready. It was, it was April. The, the building was scheduled to be ready in October, which is, you know, the sovereignty of God, which is when we had to be out. We started in January. We had to be out by the end of September. And this building was going to be ready the 1st of October, which is like, well, that sounds perfect. Uh, I, I need a place in October. And they said, just go next door to the Comporium over there and find out. So I go to Comporium. I'm like walking in and I'm like, hey, secretary, hey, I want to rent the building next door. Who do I talk to? She's like, uh, just, just call this number. And so I just, I mean, this is how random it is. I got this building. I call this number and they send me to somebody that sends me to somebody that sends me to somebody. And finally I get to somebody that knows what's going on and say, Hey, I want to rent the building that's being built. The, the CPC, uh, in October, as soon as you start, I want to be a paying client right off. Cause they had high hopes to have good revenue and not one paying client. And they're like, really? I was like, yeah, well, this is going to be a theater. But I was like, well, you know, no one's going to be doing theater on Sunday morning. So we'd love to, we'd love to have the building. And they're like, well, okay, that sounds good to us. And so the Lord worked over the next three or four weeks. We came in here, we sat down with the people, we had a meeting and we moved in renting the building week one at 450 bucks per month, which is a steal by the way, because most church planners rent for about two grand a month. Uh, and that's like hotels and stuff. So we had this whole setup when we first basically first started uh, and the Lord's been here. And, and the first day we moved in, I was preaching from Luke 9 on what it means to be a disciple. The first day we moved in, I preached about what, what it means to be a disciple. So we, we broke away from 1 Timothy. We're studying 1 Timothy. And I, I wanted to preach a, a sermon just on what it means to be a disciple. And I said this, and it applies because it applies to what we're talking about today. It said, I said this, the goal is this, that being a follower of Jesus is where you'll find your highest joy in life. And it does cost you your life. You'll find your highest joy, but it does cost you your life. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, not just a learner. They don't just learn knowledge for knowledge's sake. What they learn literally affects now the way they live. It meant that you would literally physically follow back in 2000 years, whenever you're going to follow Jesus. It meant that if you're going to be a disciple or follower, that you would physically follow Jesus now wherever he went for years, you're going to sleep where he sleeps. You're going to eat where he eats everything. And in the same way, that's what it means for us to be a disciple. Now, we can't physically follow Jesus, but at the same respect, that's what it means for us, that we're going to follow him. We're going to go where he says go. We're going to physically realize that it costs us a lot. It's not a thanks for Jesus for saving me. I can do whatever I want. But instead, 
He tells us where we sleep. He tells us where we eat. It costs us everything. And we're going to see a story here today where this man's life, where he becomes a follower, literally has that happen to him. It changes his life completely. This building has been um, a pretty amazing uh, building for us. And it's hard, as we're meeting this morning, I was praying, Lord, it's hard to not associate a building with the church. It's hard to not think, because we've had so many memories in here, that when we're out of here, like, are we still, like, is it still the same? Whenever we're meeting in different places, it's not going to feel the same because all the, really, the, the, the lo- most majority of our, of our time has been in this building. And it's kind of felt like this is, this is who we are because of this building. I have memories, you know, preaching from here and people getting saved and people being baptized in this building. And I have to remember that the, the, though there is some connection to a building, the, the church isn't a building. The church is the people. We're, so it will be different whenever we move, but we'll still all be together. Like all of us will still be together. And so we'll still be the church, whether we're here or we're somewhere else. So we rejoice that the Lord has granted us, I mean, seven straight years of being able to be here at am- amazingly low rent compared to most church planners. And we've been able to, uh, by, the Lord's, by the Lord's mercy and grace, be able to put a large mon- piece of money away because we've had such low rent and, and been able to hopefully be able to do something new that would be ours. Um, and so we will associate maybe a building that would be our own. But as we move, uh, it's going to be sentimental. Uh, Gary, who is playing bass here, has been here since the beginning. And so uh, he, was, he was saying, hey, for, for you guys that have been here like for the whole seven years, you should, you should walk around to different places and think about the memories you've had and, and different places in the building. Take some pictures because, I mean, it's going to be rubble. Like there's going to be a hotel here. We won't be able to walk around and remember, hey, I remember I baptized. Like we'll be in the hotel. Be like, was this the spot? Maybe it was. But I think I baptized some... Somewhere like we want to remember, right? So take your photos and remember. And there's been lots of great memories in this building. Maybe perhaps my favorite is this. I could I could tell a bunch of stories. And if I had the time, I would. But this is probably my favorite of all stories. We're, it was second service. It was a few years back. There was a couple that came here. They had been coming to service together. Both had been coming together and neither were Christians, though if you ask them they were, they might say they were, neither were Christians. And I loved it that they still kept coming. Clearly the Lord was working. And this particular Sunday I was preaching um, about Jesus being king and what it means for Jesus to be king on the throne. And then I said something like, uh, in, in earthly terms, have you ever heard of a king in earthly terms that would leave his throne his rule and reign, and go die for someone that he was the king of. One of his people, one of his peons, one of the, one of the, the commoners. Have you ever heard of an ki- earthly king that would literally leave his throne and rule and go die for one of the commoners of his particular country? But that's what the, in the gospel has happened. That the king has literally left his throne and come and died for the peons, for the sinners, for us. And in that particular moment, the Lord moved, he regenerated, he struck, and the Holy, Holy Spirit awakened the heart, and they were regenerated. And I walked backstage, and I was standing there after the sermon, um, and sometimes I go back there, especially second service when I'm more tired, and the guy was so moved that he got up from his chair and walked around backstage and came back. I was just standing back there, just kind of like thinking and recuperating in two services or whatever, and he comes up to me, and he says... Hey, what you just said just moved to me. And I, 
I want to be a Christian right now. He comes up to me and says, when you said Jesus, the king, left his throne, tears fighting back tears through his eyes. He says, I want to be a Christian. I believe and I want to become a Christian right now. And I'm like, okay. I mean, this doesn't happen too often. I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty jazzed up. And so you know, I can't remember who was the worship leader. But then somebody, I think it was still Jordan. He was playing or whatever. And uh, we talked through everything. We prayed through everything. He accepts Christ. And we're like, we got to go tell your girlfriend. He's like, okay, that sounds good. So we walk out the door and we walk around and we come up to the information table to tell her. And he's like, he's so excited. He goes, I want to tell you something. She's like, I'm so excited too. I want to tell you something. And he's like, what is it? And she said, I've been looking for you ever, everywhere during their sermon. I trusted Christ. And he's like, me too. And like, they just realized at the same time that both of them regenerated and put their faith in Christ at the exact same time. And neither one of them realized it. At the same time. And so while I had been talking with him, she had also just been regenerated and trusted Christ. And they had both believed at the exact same time God had saved them and they didn't even know it. And now, right now, PJ and Steph are growing in Christ, are engaged, and will be married soon and are making Christ the center of their life. That's just one. That's just one. And so the Lord has been... Amazing. I mean, think about that. Regenerated and saved at the same time and didn't even know. And so that's just one of my many favorite things that have happened here. So while uh, those memories are because the Lord has been so great to supply us, he's he's graciously supplying us other places. We'll make memories in as well. Tremendous cool things like that. The Lord's going to keep doing. So um, let's look at. This particular text where we see the Lord call someone to be a disciple, where they're going to say now it's going to cost me my entire life. And I'm going to I'm going to give everything I can now to change the way I live because of what you've done. Now, we need to realize that we're looking at Acts chapter nine. And if we were to take what we just saw in Acts chapter eight and put it beside what we're going to see in Acts chapter nine, those two conversions could not be any more different. I mean, we said last week, the Ethiopian eunuch is literally like the most low-hanging fruit on the evangelism tree ever. Like, go out there and and wait for someone. And then the guy happens to be going by, reading the Bible and saying, who is this man in Isaiah 53? Could you tell me so that I could know who he is? And so he's like, well, yeah, he's Jesus. And he tells him, and he's like, okay, I want to be... Like, that particular could could not be any more different than this particular. We have in Acts chapter 9, Saul, not low-hanging fruit... The most the most far away person you could think, if you remember, uh, chapter eight, verse one and Saul approved of the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution of the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea. And so we have here in verse three telling us, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering after house after house. So we have him violently going house to house and killing people. (laughs) And then in verse nine, we have. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8 was looking for God. Saul was not looking for Jesus at all. He had no interest in Jesus at all. Saul pre-conversion Calvin says before he's converted, he was a wild animal, a wild and ferocious beast. He was ravaging the church. So let, 
think of someone that you know that is just the most far. It doesn't have to be someone you know personally. Like the most far away person from God you can conceive of. They have no interest in Jesus. And they are literally trying to do everything they can to oppose Christ. This is like them just all of a sudden becoming a Christian. I mean, this is, this is astonishing what God's going to do here. So he's going from Jerusalem to Damascus. It's about 140 miles, a, a week at least, kind of long walk. And as he's going, we're going to see what Christ does. And I, I've called this the radical conversion of Saul. So <clears throat> while you see this, we would look at this conversion. We'd say, this is just an amazing, radical conversion. This kind of thing never happens to me. I mean, this, this happens to Saul, but not me. And what I want to do is kind of look at some of the true things that happened to Saul that we see in the book of Acts and look at how he saved. And certainly there are some anomalies. I mean, he, he does have a light from heaven. He does get blind, those kinds of things. But as we look at these radical things about Saul, I want to look at our conversion and see, are there just so many differences that we could never, ever say that we're going to be like that? Or are there some similarities, maybe even perhaps more similarities that you never thought about? And because of that, if Saul, with this radical conversion, is going to change the way he lives and say, everything I do now is going to be radically affected by Christ and for Christ, then let's look at our own lives and see if that's happening in our lives. So we have Saul going 140 miles from from Jerusalem to Damascus to kill more people. And you can see he's looking for anybody that's belonging to the way men or women. He wants to bound them and bring them to Jerusalem. And it says, verse 3, Now he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. Uh, This is the same Greek word like referring to lightning. So at night, whenever it lightens and the whole sky and the whole everything like brightens up. This is this is that this is an amazingly, amazingly, amazingly bright, bright light. And it's continual right on him. And it's falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Uh, this Curios can, can mean Lord. It can also mean lowercase Lord, L, and it also, it also can just mean sir. But who are you, sir? Who are you, Lord, as in, you know, or capital L? It can mean any of those. Capital L here because he's addressing Jesus. And so we, we would say it's Lord, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's calling him Lord yet. It could. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So here we have what would be a radical conversion. This is a radical conversion. I mean, this, this has not necessarily happened to anybody else that we know of. So the first thing about uh, the radical conversion, Saul, is literally just number one, this radical conversion. So you can put up number one for me. The radical, what, Paul has now been confronted by Jesus. The, the I am Jesus has happened. And in this, as we keep going, we're going to see that he is going to trust Christ. He's going to become a Christian. The radical conversion is taking place. Paul has been saved. As Derek Thomas says, what began as a mission of persecution is now going to end with the conversion of the persecutor. As Calvin says, which I love this. Not only has the cruel wolf Paul now become a sheep, he has also and will assume the character of a shepherd. So an amazing transformation happens in Paul. An amazing transformation. The radical conversion. What 
causes Saul's conversion. Because, as I said, he was not looking for Jesus at all. He is not like the Ethiopian eunuch. The only thing that we can say, there's only one thing that causes Saul's conversion. And that's the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. The sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. If you had told Saul whenever he was leaving to go on his trip, you're going to be converted to Christianity on the walk down to Damascus. He would likely have mocked you, sneered you, uh, probably bound you up, likely killed you. But he had left out of his own calculation the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. So let's just go ahead and stop and think. All right. Yes, the manner in which he was saved, a bright light and Jesus talking to him, wasn't the way that we were saved, (laughs) likely. But here we have a radical conversion, and the only way that he was converted was the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. So if you look at ourselves, let this fall down to the deepest parts of your soul. Those who are in Christ, the only way you were saved, the only way you were saved is the sovereign God, the sovereign grace of God, Through Jesus Christ. And so in that respect, we are no different than Paul. All at once, when he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. As he hears, I am Jesus. Saul was well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. He knew that there was claims of Jesus resurrecting from the dead. And all of a sudden, as he's walking, who are you? And he hears, I am Jesus All the pieces get put together in that particular moment for him. And he realizes all at once that to persecute anybody that followed Jesus, like Stephen, was to persecute Jesus himself. Moreover, since Jesus is speaking to him, that means that Jesus is still alive. That means that the resurrection is true. That means that since Christ is alive, that he was actually God. That means... That all the persecution that he's been doing, which he thought he was doing because he was on the right side of God, means that he was actually on the wrong side of God the entire time. And all at once he realized when he says, I am Jesus, he realizes I have been going against God instead of with him. I've been completely wrong. And now I'm going to get on the right side. I'm going to follow Jesus because Jesus is God. And we have a radical conversion moment. Here we see the I am Jesus moment for Saul is whenever he realizes Jesus is Lord. And if you're in Christ, you've had the I am Jesus moment where he breaks through your rebellion. He breaks through my rebellion. He destroys it. And he, whenever we realize Christ is Lord, we've all had this moment at some time. It might not seem like it's just as radical about the one that Paul has, but for anyone to be dead And to become alive is radical. The manner certainly is different. We never likely have been blinded on the road and had Jesus physically call us out. But the fact that we have crossed over from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. The fact that we have been converted from following the prince of the power of the air to now following the prince of all princes, the king of all kings. Means that we have also been radically converted. So that's why you don't need to feel like you don't ever need to feel like my conversion isn't spectacular. It is spectacular. Your conversion is absolutely spectacular. 
my, my pastor, whenever I was in seminary, used to always say this. If you didn't have some, you know, I was, you know, killing everybody and hooked out on drugs. And, I, you know, I was walking down the road and all of a sudden I was about to kill someone that acts. And I stopped and I was like, oh, I need Jesus. If you, if you didn't have anything like that and you're like, you have to tell this long, drawn out testimony. And then finally you got saved and you really, he, he said this, you shouldn't ever like feel like your, your salvation isn't spectacular. If you're like, I grew up in a Christian home and I was saved at eight. You shouldn't ever feel like that's not spectacular. And then he said this. I love this. He said, if that's your testimony, that just means whenever you tell your testimony, you get to talk about Jesus more than yourself. And so I like that. I think that's a great, I think that's a great way to think about it. That means still that every conversion that's, been, that's ever happened is a spectacular con- conversion. And just like Paul, as we see in verse 15, every single person here is a chosen instrument of Jesus to carry his name forward. Whether you're Saul or whether you're just plain old fud. So here we see the first thing about his conversion is that, yes, it was radical, but it was also no different than us being converted. Spiritually speaking. So here, let's keep going. This is what we see now. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then he says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. So brand new converted, and he's fasting. Brand new. I mean, literally just converted, he's already fasting. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. This is such an interesting. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And he said, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Now, we're going to come back and keep kind of finishing the, the, the narrative of Ananias. But we need to stop there and say, brand new conversion. Uh, we have Saul, we see him already fasting and we already see him praying. And we're going to see in verse 18 that he's also baptized. And so actually, if you look uh, implicitly in verse 9 and 17, it's clear that he joined a fellowship of believers. Go to this particular house and be with these particular people that are believers. And it's expressly said in verse 19b, if you go to the the second half, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And so we see him already immediately joining other disciples and being in a fellowship of some sort, though it's it's brand new, (coughs) whenever he's converted. So the radical conversion leads to the second point, which is, Immediate radical practice of the spiritual disciplines for Saul. As soon as he's converted, he's fasting, he's praying, he's being baptized and he's joining other believers. These are just practicing the spiritual disciplines. The moment he got saved, we see him doing things that show signs of spiritual life. If someone is found to be praying, this is a sign of spiritual life. This is genuine conversion shows someone that desires to now pray. He prayed for when. Uh, Derek Thomas said, what's he praying for? He says he's praying for sight. Like, he's blind now. He's praying for both physical and spiritual sight. He's praying for wisdom to discern all that he had just experienced. He's likely praying for forgiveness for the wicked sins he had been carrying out. He's praying for the burden of sin, which every at the moment of conversion people would be praying for. And we have this all happening with a beginner convert. A beginner convert. 
So let's, let's stop and take this, this a step and just think about this. If we're going to take an application point from this. And, and, and I put, number two, radical practice of the spiritual disciplines. And I should have put, you know, little, little quotes around radical. Because, again, this is not really anything that Christians themselves shouldn't be doing. So let, let's ask, how are you doing now at the spiritual disciplines? Prayer, reading the Bible, fasting, being with other believers. All the things that, that are the normal spiritual disciplines. This is a brand new convert already doing them. And so we see that practicing the spiritual disciplines while he's doing them, I don't think, and I don't think the Bible thinks, is so radical. These are the things that believers should be doing. So as we're looking here at the life of a follower of Jesus, we're seeing two things already. One, his conversion isn't so radical because anybody that's being transferred from death to life, I mean, everybody experiences that that's saved. And here we have someone practicing spiritual disciplines, which isn't so radical because that's what all believers should be doing. Next thing, I want to uh, keep going and I want you to see what's going to happen here. We're going to come back and talk about Ananias in just a second. So you're going to find this man praying, verse 12, and he's seen a vision. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain sight. So Saul's aware that this is going to happen. And and Ananias answered, Lord, you know, I'm not sure about this. Uh, What's going on? You know, he has the, he has, he has the authority to kill me and I don't, you know, really want to die. Uh, And then we see here in verse 15, the next thing that leads us, verse 15 and 16, watch this. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So immediately we have Jesus saying to Ananias. But we know that this is clear that it's made known to Paul. That he has a radical mission revealed to him immediately. At Saul's conversion, Jesus says, I didn't just save you just to save you. I saved you to give you a mission as well. And the mission is going to be revealed to you instantly. I've got a mission for you, Paul. I saved you because I want you to be the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and all the children of Israel. So that's a pretty that's a pretty big Huge group of people. That's everyone. Everybody that's Jews or Gentiles and all the kings. I want you who have been amazingly trained for this. You just haven't been converted to do that. And I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name. So the third thing and the radical conversion of Saul is this. God's radical mission revealed. God's radical mission revealed. Paul had undergone a change of religion, sure. He'd undergone a change of focus, certainly. But more importantly, he now has had a complete change of mission. He is trying to kill people to keep them from becoming Christians. And now he's trying to save people to make them Christians so they may have life eternal. This is a complete change of mission. We need to understand that just like Saul has been given a mission, every single one of us, the moment we meet Jesus, has also been given a mission. And so... This radical conversion of Saul where he says, I have a radical mission for you now. Well, I think we've all read, if you're believers in Christ, Matthew 28. And so the radical mission given to Saul is really no different than the radical mission given to us. This is what Jesus says 
to his disciples. And thereby, since he says that his disciples at the time, it's true for all of us. He says this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded with you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so when we look at Paul being obedient to the mission of God, planting churches and preaching Christ all over, and we think, wow, what a what an amazing mission Paul was given. You've been given the exact same thing. The exact same thing. To go make disciples. Now certainly there's differences. Um, the, the name. He, he doesn't. Uh, Jesus doesn't change his name. He changes his own name. He was already Paul before conversion. That was because he was a Roman citizen. That was his Roman name. So whenever he was with Jews. He would call himself Saul. Whenever he was with Gentiles. He would call himself Paul. And then at, at conversion, he said, the Lord has, has, has saved me. And so he's given me a call to, to preach Christ to the Gentiles. And so, for the sake of mission, I'm going to stop calling myself Saul and start calling myself Paul. That's becoming all things to all people. I'm changing my name from a Jewish name to a Gentile name so that I'll make more inroads for mission. He changes his name to Paul permanently for the sake of mission. And so he's so mission-minded, he gets down to the minutia and detail of saying, I want to even change my name for mission. We can be that mission-minded. And Jesus, I mean, the irony of all ironies, where he has been, as it says in Acts chapter 2, ravaging the church. And as it says, Acts chapter 8, verse 3, ravaging the church. And as it says in Acts 9 verse 1, that he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He's been carrying out just horrific atrocities of persecution against the church. Now, Jesus says that he is going to also, uh, in verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, the exact same thing is going to happen to him. As a matter of fact, Paul lists out these things that happens to him in 2 Corinthians verse 11. So as he has been persecuting Christ, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name in order that more people will come to Christ. And these are just some of the persecutions Paul lists out that Christ prophesies in verse 16 that happens. In 2 Corinthians verse 11, it says, he says, I'm talking like a madman for saying these things that have happened to me because it could come across as boastful. But I don't want to come across as boastful, but I am going to list out the things that have happened to me just so you know how Christ has been glorified through me in my sufferings. These are the sufferings, far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings. This is the life of Paul after Christ. He has had countless beatings. We can gloss over that because it's such an enormous list. Just think about it. beaten so many times. Beaten, not kind of like knocked around a couple times and that's it. Beaten so many times for Jesus. I can't even remember the number. Countless beatings. And after, often those beatings have been near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Like, what's the deal with the 39 lashes? 40 was the perfect number in their mind. So they thought, if we literally whip you 40 times because it's the perfect number, we will have perfectly killed you. And so our mind is, we want to beat you because you love Jesus so much. 
in our mind, right to the point of death. If we could give you 39.9 lashes, we would. But we're going to give you 39 lashes because in our mind, we have literally beaten you to the point of death. Five times I have received the 39 lashes minus one, which rips apart his back. Three times I was also beaten with rods, not just fists, but this time with rods. And once, like Stephen, I was actually stoned, but it didn't kill me. So he was beaten countless amount of times, five times whipped, beaten with rods three times. And even this is all separate occasions stoned. Can you imagine the scars that this man had? So when you hear for, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You're getting a picture of just how devoted this man was to Jesus. But as I'm saying, this conversion of him. Spiritually speaking, the things that have happened to him have happened to us. We are radically saved. We have been given the same mission. We can practice the spiritual disciplines right away just like he does. And then he, he goes on and he says, I've also been in frequent journeys and danger from rivers. So it's not just people actively trying to kill me for my faith, but I've also just been killed by, almost been killed by rivers. I've been killed by just people that have bad malice in their hearts, by robbers and danger from people and danger from Gentiles, danger in the city and danger in wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. I've been hungry. I've been so hungry I couldn't, I couldn't find food and I've been thirsty often without, without food. I've been so freezing and in the exposure, I've almost died. Weather has almost killed me. And apart from all those physical things, I have the mental persecution. I have such anguish and worry that I want Christ to be preached. And all the churches that have been planted, I want them to prosper. I want them to make disciples that make disciples and make disciples. So the mental anguish of worrying about them, as it says. And apart from all the other things, is the daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all these churches. So when we get verse 16 read to us, we shouldn't just kind of... Jesus said, I'll show him how much he'll suffer. I mean, he has suffered. But he keeps going. He keeps on going. And though we might experience some level of suffering, God's radical mission has been revealed to us. We've been talking about evangelism over the last three weeks. That's what chapter 7 End of six, into seven, and into eight. We've been talking about evangelism, specifically like strategies for evangelism, strategy for mission, things that we should see about mission. I've been hitting that particular thing. Community mission care. I've been hitting mission over the last three weeks. Looking at the life of Paul and then looking at our own lives. Over the last three weeks where we've talked directly about it. How many times have we shared the gospel over the last three weeks with someone that doesn't know Christ? You specifically. Believer in Christ, how many times have you shared the gospel with someone that doesn't know Christ? R.C. Sproul says this, everybody loves to hear when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. But once we get there, he says, now go. And that's when the Christian life becomes difficult. For Paul, radical mission is revealed and radical mission is carried out. It should be no different for us. It should be no different. Now I want to look at this Ananias. I want to look at this Ananias because this is an extraordinary thing. Go back up to verse 10 and let's look at Ananias. 
Now, there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So Ananias got something to do. You can see he automatically loves Jesus. Yes. What do you want? And he said, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul is there for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. That's you, by the way, Ananias, <laughs> has come to him and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. And he's like, wait a second. So what you're saying is Saul's there and I, I've heard of him. And in the vision, Ananias goes there and I'm Ananias. So I think you're saying. 